a humbling reality this last week in that it's been 23 years this fall that I went to Bible school for the first time. It was 23 years and one month ago that I was in Regina at Canadian Bible College at Youth Conference and received a very strong, distinct calling to pastoral ministry. And in the fall of that year, in, in uh, September of 1996, I returned back uh, to that beautiful city to engage on a journey and an adventure that I was highly anticipating by that point. The first years or the first moments of, uh, of Bible school were incredibly, um, they were exciting. I was uh, anticipating being able to spread my wings out and stepping into adulthood. I was anticipating um, just figuring out this course for my life. I was anticipating learning and growing and learning my craft to become uh, a pastor and, and, and figuring it all out. And the first uh, you know, moments of, of that journey were really exciting. As we arrived on campus, uh, my parents were there with me who were here this morning. They surprised me between services and showed up. And I remember pushing my mom out of my room and saying, it's time to go, mom. I'm ready to, to walk free and, and be released from your oppressive rule. No, that didn't happen. But uh, uh, I, was, I was excited. And I remember things like my first classes, uh, um, you know, going to sporting events. I remember we had this event called Freshman Frolic where they toured us through the streets of Regina and tried to embarrass us. And uh, it, was, it was unbelievable. You know, for some of you who know me well, you'll probably appreciate uh, and, and laugh with me that some of my favorite moments actually came in the cafeteria. And at the end of the year, 28 pounds heavier than I entered the year, uh, you know, I maybe shouldn't have been as excited to be in the cafeteria, but um, I loved going and having dinner with my friends and having opportunities to rub shoulders with them and joke around and, and contemplate life and have fun and do all these things. And, and I remember the first night that I got into the cafeteria, I decided that I was going to go in, on a healthy food track. And I decided I was going to become a vegetarian that night. There was a vegetarian option and a carnivore option. And as I looked at the food, they scooped it onto my plate. Actually, I slopped it onto my plate. And after eating my first portion of zucchini lasagna, I have become clean and free. I am now full-fledged uh, full carnivore, and I am not ready to go back to my vegetarian ways. But we had so much fun in the cafeteria. And one of the things that would often take place at the end of the month after the, our time in the cafeteria was done is that we would make our way um, through the school um, to a lecture hall or to a room that we called 81, and we would have something called Thinkspiration. It was just very simply a night to worship God. Later iterations of students that went on uh, that were, are younger than me and, and came to school after me called this event Beggar's Feast, which was confusing to me because I thought the food that we had just eaten in the cafeteria was the Beggar's Feast. But apparently they wanted to go for something different later. And so but we just called it Thingspiration. It was a, a night where we would just get together and sing and worship Jesus. And it was powerful. And, and quite simply, it was just a worship service. We would come into this room. The temperature was lowered very low in the middle of winters in Regina. It was like 16 degrees. And we would get together and the worship leader would stand at the front and he would strum his guitar and he'd look at us and he'd say, okay. Friends, we're going to worship Jesus tonight, and so why don't you join along with me? And we would begin. They kept it cold at the beginning because as we started to move and worship Jesus, that room would heat up and it would get so hot in the end, sweat would be pouring off of our faces. But we learned in those moments and in those times just to worship Jesus with reckless abandon. I remember for the, some of the first times in my life raising my arms in worship. I remember getting down on my knees and bowing before the king. 
I remember times when we would just hug and embrace each other and with our arms over each other's shoulders, swaying and singing to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We had powerful encounters with the Almighty God of the universe. And it shaped us, friends. Never had I worshipped with such reckless abandon. Never had I given Jesus such lordship of my life and been so open to him working in me. These were powerful, beautiful times that shaped a generation, maybe like nothing else through the course of our schooling. And Jesus was at the center of it, leading us, receiving from us, and blessing us as our king. This morning, we want to talk through uh, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, where the early Christians declared Jesus to be king. And so if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them to Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 11. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 11. And we're going to talk about the kingship of Jesus here this morning. And, and it's timely. Uh, this morning, or this, on this day, we're celebrating Palm Sunday. And the entrance of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, the center and the heart of the Christian faith in these early, uh, early ancient days. And so if, uh, I would encourage you to follow along. I'll read for us and with us. If you don't have a Bible here this morning, there are some at the back. And we would encourage you to pick one up. And, uh, and read through it and then take it with you. It will be our gift to you um, to be able to read the Word of God and, and engage with it. But let's engage with it now, starting in verse 1 of chapter 21 in the book of Matthew. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, uh, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone say, says anything to you, See that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what, the, what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others... Uh, cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked and said, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Friends, as we read this passage, we enter into the last chapter of Jesus' life. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem at a time that's not only fascinating, but highly dramatic. And this could have been an opportunity for King Jesus to make a very powerful statement. He could have come in with much power and much might. It probably, in our earthly minds, would have been highly appropriate for Jesus to come in on a huge black steed or a black horse, maybe on a on a carriage, or on a, on, a, on a chariot. He could have made a powerful statement. He could have had a trumpet processional. He could have had people announcing his arrival. But instead, our King, the Almighty God of the universe, who stepped out of heaven to step onto this earth to hang on a cross, comes in on a simple donkey. There's incredible symbolism, and there's an incredible message that comes as Jesus comes in through the east side of Jerusalem into the old city. And it can't be lost on us. 
the first thing to note here is that scholars say that when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, he came during the Passover festival, the greatest of all festivals uh, of the early church. A festival that marks uh, the grace and mercy of Jesus, to liter- to, or of God, to literally pass over and spare the people when they lived in, in Egypt. They're celebrating the grace and mercy in this festival setting. Scholars say that according to the record uh, of, of the governor of Rome, that upwards of 2.5 and more million people were in the city. They'd come from all corners of the world to descend upon Jerusalem. They say that there was 25,000 sheep that were lambs that were slain for this festival to consume. And it was a Passover regulation that if you were going to, if you were going to sacrifice, or if you were going to, to slain a lamb to eat and to consume and to celebrate with, you had to have 10 people at least at your table. So we know there are at least 2.5 million people that are in the city of Jerusalem. And then he comes in on a donkey, a humble beast. And I thought to myself this week, well, why does that matter? Why is it significant? Well, I, I discovered when you read in Mark chapter 11 that this was not only a donkey, but this animal had never been ridden, which made it suitable for sacrificial purposes. In, in the sacrificial system, they would take an unridden foal and they would sacrifice it on the altar to cleanse the altar to get it ready for the proper sacrifice that was to come. And so this wasn't lost on the early church, on the early Christians. As the donkey was slain, as Jesus rode in on the donkey, they would have understood that this beast was used for cleansing and that, that as Jesus rode in, there was a message being sent. That there was a work being done to prepare the altar for the ultimate sacrifice that would, that would cover us for our sins. There's a message being sent, and instead of this strong, powerful beast that maybe he could have rode in on, Jesus enters into Jerusalem humbly, meekly, and gracefully. It's a beautiful picture. But it keeps going. In verse 5 here of chapter 21, it says, Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you. In some translations it says, see your salvation comes to you. That word salvation or that word king is the word yesha in the Jewish language. The name of Jesus was Yeshua. And so again, it wasn't lost on them that as, as uh, this, this prophetic word from Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 is, is, rem- is remembered, that Yesha or Yeshua is coming before them. Their Savior is entering into their lives. And in the middle of 2.5 million people, a different kind of king shows up. A different kind of king arrives. And he comes before them. And as he comes, we read in verse 9 that they call out to him and they shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. That name Hosanna translates into, um, or it means save now. And it was a cry of the people for salvation from the highest places. It's a cry for deliverance. It's a cry for blessing. And as they see their, their, their meek, uh, mild, humble king come into the streets. They stand up and they call out for salvation and for deliverance. These are powerful moments. They even acknowledge here in, in uh, chapter 9 at the very end there, Hosanna in the highest heaven. What they're acknowledging is that this is a person who is the mightiest of them all. 
He's above even the angels. He has come to rule over everything. And he's come to save and to work in ways that no one else could. So as I was reading this, and I love this kind of research and this kind of study, it gets me so excited. And poor Rollo this week suffered through all of these realizations and understandings as I learned them this week. As I, as I, as I read all of these things and learned these things and, and grew in these things and these understandings, the question that came to me is why? Why does it matter? Why does it matter that he came in different? Why does it matter that he came in humbly? Why does it matter that these things took place? And I think the answer really is quite simple. It's that it matters because Jesus is a different kind of king. These people had known kings for, for generations. We know leaders in our lives in all sorts of circles and in all sorts of ways. And when we recognize the, the fate of leadership in our world and, and truly the fate of leadership in the ancient world as well, we recognize that we need a different kind of king that's going to come to save us. We know based on Isaiah chapter 53 that Jesus came to this world and because of his death on the cross that there's a physical healing and there's a physical work that Jesus does in us, but we also know because of the story of scripture and in many places that there's a physical healing as well. That Jesus did something for us that no one else on this earth ever could have provided for us. He's a different kind of king. He steps into our life in a different kind of way. And he touches us in a way that's so whole, so pure, so transformational. He couldn't have just been a normal earthly king. We are coming up to an election, and I'm going to encourage us all to go and vote on Tuesday, if you haven't done so already. And there's good people that are running in this election all, in, across all parties. But the, the, the reality of leadership in the world that we live in today is that it, it, it waxes and it wanes. It comes and it goes. People have influence for a season and then they step away. But not this king. Jesus, when he stepped onto this earth and when he enters into Jerusalem there, there is an acknowledgement, there's a realization that while, uh, while he is king, he is different. That he's going to touch lives for eternity. And not just one or two lives, but all lives he's going to touch for eternity. Jesus leads us in a way, and, that, and his leadership transforms us, it delivers us, it releases us, and it equips us to live differently. It isn't that empty or half-promise that we so often experience in leadership today, or in sometimes in politicians, that leaves us wanting. It is whole, it is complete, it is total, and it is beautiful. Jesus shares the wealth of his kingdom with his followers, and he touches us. He's a very different kind of king, and this is exactly what we needed. So there's this huge, dramatic statement that's made over 2,000 years ago, and there's a huge, dramatic statement that's made here today. Because Jesus is a different kind of king. And that is exactly what we needed. And that's exactly what we celebrate here today. You know, I did a four-year degree at Canadian Bible College, now called Ambrose University, which is now in Calgary. And there were, those were some of the best years of my life. Some of the people that I hung out with are some of my best friends today. Some of the courses that I took still, I can hear the words of the professors in my ears. Some of the professors that I had. One of them was Andy Reimer, who grew up in this church and I took three courses with and played hockey with. Amazing people who had amazing impact on my lives. But as I said, some of the most impactful uh, work that was done in my life probably were in some of the informal times that we shared outside of the classroom. And I remember being in the dorms. I remember being in a room or in a lounge. I remember driving in a car. I remember being in hallways in the school or corners of the building when we would just have these spontaneous times of worship 
where we would speak to one another, encourage one another, and then somebody would pick up a guitar and say, why don't we just worship Jesus now? And so we would, we would start, and, and it was just simple, like those inspiration times. Somebody would strike a chord and say, are we ready? And then off we would go. And for hours we would sing. I remember being in the lounge of my dorm, and it was sweltering. And there were guys down on their knees. We were all holding out our arms. We were weeping in front of Jesus. This was a king who was having a powerful effect upon our lives. And I remember walking out of that place, and it was like our face was actually glowing. We had had an encounter with Jesus that had touched us to the deepest part of our souls. And it shaped us. It shaped a generation of Christian workers. Those nights, it felt like the veil between heaven and earth was just tissue paper thin. It was like Isaiah 6 in the flesh. We were experiencing the throne room of Jesus. Powerful, powerful time. And I want to pause for a quick moment because as I talk about Bible school, I feel a responsibility to encourage others to engage with, with those environments as well. There, we have many uh, students in our church, and we have students that are coming up to graduation this next year. We have, uh, in different ways, we've got grade 12 grads coming, and we've got some university grads coming. And I want to encourage you that probably, and perhaps some of the best things that you could do with your life would be to take one intentional year and set aside one year of your life to go and to, to spend time in a formal uh, Bible school setting. And, and, and parents, let me encourage you in this. That some of the best things that you can do for your children, as we uh, saw a family dedicating their children to Jesus here today, some of the best things that you can do for your children and their walk with the Lord is to send them away for intentional time with Jesus. There are many great Christian uh, Bible institutions across our country and across the world. And yes, it's an expensive uh, uh, time for people to go. But the transforming work that takes place, I don't know if, it could, if we could ever put a price on that. And the work that gets done and the callings that are made and the, and the lives that are touched in Jesus' name, both in the life of your child and the life of others as they go out and live for Jesus in this world. Oh, friends, it's worth it. And so I would encourage you, consider a Bible school for one year or a semester or whatever you can afford to do. It's, a, it's an expensive investment, but it's an investment that pays eternal dividends. It is really, really, really worth it. So as we worshipped in the, those dorms uh, uh, on those cold Regina nights, uh, and we ha or it was an ins ins uh, inspiration or whatever, like I talked about earlier, one of the things that we learned to do was to worship Jesus and have life-changing life encounters with him. I think it's notable here to notice the posture of the crowds in verse 9. As Jesus is proceeding up the street, they look him in the face and they cry out to him, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. These were people that were looking Jesus in the face and having an encounter with him that would profoundly and perfectly change their lives. And there's a posture there that I want us to see and I want us to grab hold of this morning that I believe is critical in the Christian life and that sometimes we lose sight of. You know, for many of us, as we worship here today, and, and I did this up front as we're worshiping, we're calling out to Jesus, asking him for things in our lives. And there's good reason to do this, and we should continue to do this. We call out to Jesus, and we ask him for healing. We call out to Jesus, and we ask him for provision. We call out to Jesus, and we ask him for all sorts of different things, whether it's the times that we're worshiping, or the times that we're at home in prayer, or wherever we, we, we might be. 
we call out to Jesus and we look to his hands and we say, Jesus, this is what I need to get through this day and so would you give it to me? And there's good reason why we ask Jesus to do this. He is the provider. He is Jehovah Jireh. He is a generous uh, God who provides for his people. But with that, let me say this. That if the only reason we look to Jesus is to receive something from him, then we're missing the mark. If the only reason we look to Jesus is to get something out of his hands, then as J.D. Greer says in the Judges series, which many of us have just worked through in our small groups, if that's the only reason that we look to Jesus, then we're only going to see Jesus as useful in our lives rather than seeing him and experiencing him as beautiful. When we look to Jesus and Jesus is only useful, he becomes an accessory to our life and more and more he becomes discretionary. And so when we don't get the things that we need from Jesus, we start to look elsewhere and we start to push him to the side and we start to miss the point. These early Christians, as Jesus proceeds into Jerusalem, capture something that is powerfully important in the Christian life that we have to look look to. Well, we, we can ask Jesus for things from his hands, and I would encourage us to continue to do that. We also have to look to the face of Jesus and worship him as our beautiful Savior. Jesus needs to be beautiful to us and not just useful to us. And there's a difference there. When we worship Jesus and when we bow before him and when we sing out these declarations about who he is, it powerfully shapes our lives. It fuels us with hope. It fuels us with joy. It gives us strength to face the day. It brings us into close, intimate relationship with God. And this is critically important to the relationship that we share with him. Jesus is useful, yes, but he's beautiful as well. And when we keep the two pieces in balance together, we can experience a dynamic in the Christian life that leads us into spaces of worship rather than spaces of wanting. It's a powerful thing that the early church understood. And it's something that sometimes we lose sight of in the thickest parts of our days or the thickest parts of our lives. And there are great ways to look into the face of Jesus. We can read the word of God. We can pray. We can worship. These are some of the ways that we can look into the face of Jesus. And hear me when I say it's not all about a song or a rhythm or a preference. It's about an intentional posture of bowing to Jesus and choosing to embrace him. This is how we find joy, friends. And joy is what we find when we look into his face. Last weekend, we were here at the church and and singing, and there was something that was heavy upon my heart that I was struggling to let go of. And so I was up here at the front, and I was singing, and a time came, and it was overwhelming. What I was working through was overwhelming to me and powerful, and it was, it was choking me up, and I was emotional. And I remember I finally came to the place where it's like, fine, Jesus, I'm just going to give it to you, and I'm just going to worship. And there was an intentional posture, and an intentional decision made as we sang that song, New Hallelujah, where I was just going to look to Jesus, and I was just going to rest in him and look him in the face and worship him. And it's amazing the transforming work that took place in my heart as I just surrendered the situation to Jesus and I looked to him and I held up my arms. My joy quotient increased. My perspective changed. I was able to surrender that. And all week I've been living with faith and confidence knowing that Jesus is going to work in this situation. Friends, we find joy when we bow to the king. And these early Christians as they bowed, their lives were touched. We don't know how many people lined that street that day, but we know that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, 
knew that Jesus had arrived. And for many of those people, when they worshipped the king, when they looked him in the face and, and saw him there, it touched them powerfully. Well, this passage concludes with people who are in awe and wonder of this freshly arrived, meek, humble king. And as he comes in, it says in verse 10, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? 2.5 plus million people. Who is this? And the crowd answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. There's a powerful reality in our lives that when Jesus is king, that he works in our lives, but then he works through our lives. As we're at the front end of this Passion Week, we have an opportunity to put Jesus on the throne of our lives and allow him to shine through us so that others can see his work in us. And this is what takes place here. These people made Jesus king. They made him Lord. And the invitation is for us to do the same here. This week, we're coming onto the, we're at the front end of Passion Week, of of, of, of the Holy Week, uh, and a week where we have to make intentional decisions to follow Jesus. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. He holds us for eternity. And we have this uh, opportunity this week to intentionally journey with Him and with the church to look Him in the face. And so we have numbers of great activities this week that are going to help with that, but there are things that we can do daily. I'm going to suggest there's six things that we can do daily that put Jesus at the helm of our ships and give him lordship of our lives. And so I want to talk through six things here that you, we can practice daily to help us make Jesus king. Number one would be to surrender daily. It would be to, uh, every day, willingly give up control of our lives, to get rid of bad habits, desires, and, and to daily submit to God. Remember what Jesus modeled for us in Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer. He said, not my will, but yours be done. He's calling out to the Father, and we need to do the same. We need to lay down our agendas, lay down sometimes our ambitions, and just give Jesus the steering wheel. We need to confess our sins and not let them control us. There are no secrets with God, and so we just come and surrender daily, and we hold out our hands and say, okay, God, my life is yours. Do with it as you will. After we do that, we need to ask for wisdom, number two. We need to ask for wisdom. We need to daily ask God to take leadership of our lives and to guide us forward. And then we need to ask for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit and ask God to help us to live in ways that lead us closer to Him and not away from Him. We have opportunities to, to ask God to help us make wise decisions in how we uh, move forward at work or, or how we work with our kids or, or how we work in our communities or our schools or wherever it is we go. We have opportunities to make wise decisions and ask God to influence those wise decisions in all aspects of our lives. We need to ask Him daily to give us His Holy Spirit. And we have His Holy Spirit, but for a fresh filling so that we can live for Him. Number three is we need to be on alert, on alert for evil. There are many things in life, vices, that can pull us away from God. The Bible says in the book of Psalms uh, that we are to flee from evil and do good. And so be careful what you input into your life, friends. Be careful of technology and media. Be careful of who is around you. Be careful of what is around you. It might be that you have to step aside from, from technology or certain people or certain situations for a time because you realize of the negative impact they have on our lives. Be on alert for evil and flee from it. Number four is obey. 
Every day we have an opportunity to, to hear the voice of God and to live in obedience to it. And it's not always going to make sense, but it always brings us deep, the deepest measures of joy, and it always builds God's kingdom. This last Thursday, I was sitting in my desk, and I had an email from the city police who I work with, and, and it was uh, for the CISM, the Critical Incident Stress Management Team, to come over to the police station. And they needed five people. There's ten of us on the team. They needed five people to come. And so I didn't know if they needed me or not, and I said to Jesus, okay, if you want me to go, I'll go. And I felt this, this inclination, I want you to go. So I said, okay, Jesus, here's the test. Maybe you shouldn't have done this, but here's the test. If every light is green by the time I get to the police station, I'm going to go and I'll step up to that office. And so we get to the first light, it was green. Second light's green. Third light, I could see the little man counting down on the, on the side. Five, four, and I gunned it through the intersection. Green. Fourth intersection, green. Fifth intersection, green. I walked upstairs into the police station, and I walked into the inspector's office, who's become a good friend of mine. And he was picking up his phone and dialing a number, and he looks up, and he starts laughing. He said, I was just calling because we needed you here. And for an hour, I sat in a boardroom with five police off, four police officers and a 911 dispatcher and four other police uh, officers. And we talked about a, a traumatic incident that uh, some of our police officers went through this week. It was a God moment. And a, a moment that God used me. It happens all the time when we hear the voice of Jesus and respond to it. We never would get into these situations only when Jesus invites us to. The fifth thing is serve God and build his kingdom. You know, there's lots of great things we can do in life, but are they the God things that we should do? We can spend our time doing uh, lots of good things around the house or around the community, but are they the things that God wants us to do that are daily going to build his kingdom? And so the question that comes is, how are you serving Jesus today? For you, it, it might be something in the church, but for many of us, it's things that we do in the school or the neighborhood or our homes or the community. Consider how you can serve King Jesus here today and how you can build his kingdom. It's important. And finally, stick with it for the long haul. Our propensity in life is to try things, and when it doesn't work out exactly like we want, to walk away. Leaders come and go in our lives, but when we live out these postures for the long haul, we are going to find the sustaining joy that comes from Jesus. We won't be left wanting like we so often are with our earthly leaders, but instead we will discover a rhythm and a pattern in our Christian walk that will be sustaining and deep and one that leads us with blessing from Jesus. Friends, this is an incredible season. And it's a season, it's a week that we start out by declaring Jesus as King. It's an opportunity that we have to look our Savior in the face and to declare Him as beautiful, to thank Him for the things that He gives to us, but this to declare that He is number one in our lives. This week is the most central part of the Christian calendar, and what makes it so is King Jesus. And so let me encourage you this morning. Let me encourage you that we have an opportunity right now to make an intentional decision to call out to Jesus as King. We have an opportunity right now, and we're going to sing in a moment, to stand up. And it doesn't matter about the song. It doesn't matter about the rhythm. It doesn't matter about a preference. What matters is that we intentionally call out to the King. And it's a conscious decision that we make today and we make for the rest of our lives. It's okay to lay aside the things of this week, to surrender to give up and to let Jesus take the helm of the ship. And so I'm going to encourage you 
I'm going to step off the stage in just a moment. And the worship team's going to start up. And I want you to stand. And you might, it might be appropriate for you in, in your act of surrender to raise your hands, maybe for the first time. If you want to raise your hands like this or you want to raise your hands like this, that's between you and Jesus. I'm not going to stand in the way. But I want to invite you to worship the King, the one that we celebrate all week long, the one who's number one in our lives, one who stepped out of heaven and gave his life as a ransom for many so that we could live in freedom for him. So that we could be touched and transformed and held for eternity and given the Holy Spirit. So would you stand with me right now? And would you lift your hands? And would you call out with me to our beautiful King? Let's sing loud and let's sing proud. <laughs> 